1: Hello, this is Timothy Revel, New Scientist's Deputy US Editor. It's that time again. We've got another episode of Escape Pod for you today. That's the show we ran a few years ago to get a bit of an intellectual break from something massive that was happening, oh, in 2020 and 2021. I'm sure you remember. But speaking of massive, that's today's theme. Whether you've never had a chance to listen before or were a fan of Escape Pod the first time round, take a listen to this exploration of mass. Mass. You'll meet the magical light insects called fairy wasps, so tiny it's near impossible to weigh them, and then the universe-defining scale of dark matter and why it, you know, matters, and a funny story about all the ways we've tried to weigh a kilogram. Enjoy the show!
2: Hello and welcome back aboard the New Scientist Escape pod.
0: I'm Anna Deming, New Scientist Features Editor.
2: And I'm Timothy Revel, New Scientist's Comment and Culture Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm podcast editor. And I'm going to talk about fairies. Uh, I'm literally away with the fairies this week. Uh, It's a group of insects called fairy wasps. It's the flying animal with the smallest mass in the world. Ooh. (laughs) Uh, Fairy wasps are calcid wasps, uh, and the smallest is only 150 micrometres long. So that's 0.15 millimetres long. Uh, It's about the diameter of a human hair. This smallest one is a Hawaiian parasitic wasp called Kikikihuna, which is uh, mm. from the Hawaiian word meaning tiny bit. It's uh, actually another on the theme of nice names. There's another microscopic insect in the same family called Tinkerella Nana,
1: the Tinkerbell after the fairy <laughs> in Peter Pan. These sound pretty cool, um, but I guess what we really want to know is what's its mass?
2: Yeah, well, actually, no one's that sure because there's. <laughs> they're so small they're pretty hard to weigh but uh they people think they're about one forty thousandth of a gram oh, so very that's small tiny thing. yeah
0: you'd imagine you can just float off away if you're weigh so little
2: yeah well that's the thing so uh, i think the physics of flight is is different when you're that small almost so you know all actively flying things from aircraft to bats and birds and other insects, they've got broad wings that generate lift. But these fairy wasps are so small, their wings are more like rods with little hairs on them. So if you imagine a, a tiny wooden spoon, the wings are shaped like that, but with bristles coming out. Like a spoon, they kind of stir the air, and that's how they fly. And they don't actually fly very far, to be fair. And But it's almost... I uh, kind of imagine them crawling through the air with these bristle wings like dragging themselves through the air as if it's treacle. So I'll post a picture of them on Twitter and you can see the wings. It's, you know, it's an electron micrograph because they're so small, you can't take a normal photo of them. Um, And you can just see this incredible, beautiful, tiny little insect with these bristle wings. The other thing that's nice about them isn't something like the lichen we talked about the other day. You know, this is not something you can really go out and look at in your garden, but they are there at the back of your garden, like, like actual fairies. There really are fairies there. Um, they're, they're everywhere. There's thousands of species of them, and they're all over the place. And uh, a bonus, a little bonus fact about these things, the males are known as degenerate males.
0: I didn't say that, by the way. I didn't say males were degenerate.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was wondering if we were still on wasps. <laughs> Well, it's not that kind of degenerate. Um, in biology, it just means it's lost some of its functions. Um, and the males of these things are even smaller than the females. They they don't fly. In fact, some of them never even come out of the eggs they hatch into. Because they're parasitic, they are laid themselves into the eggs of other insects. And they spend their whole lives in there, like mating and dying inside the other insect's egg without even coming out.
0: Sounds like a prison. It's actually getting perilously close to not being a nice escape pod again, (laughs) Rowan.
2: Yeah, Okay. Well, yeah, the point is, is that there are, you know, there is huge amounts of biodiversity that goes unnoticed because it's so tiny. It's under your noses. It's under normal visual range. But it's so important. And there are fairies at the bottom of your garden.
0: And how to follow fairies at the bottom of your garden <laughs> I can't wait to talk to my daughter about that but I, I, I think if you take mass to the other extreme say astrophysical and cosmological scales it it also gets quite exciting so you might think of mass as the stuff that weighs you down in everyday life it's the stuff that makes it harder to get up off the sofa literally the weight on your shoulders and so on. when you get a lot of mass really interesting things start to happen
2: So how much is a lot in this context? More than, you know, is weighing me down in my bed in the morning? Yeah,
0: we're talking (laughs) a lot of fairy wasps. (laughs) So say, um, let's talk about hydrogen atoms. So these are the simplest atoms you can get. It's just a proton and an electron. You get enough of these together, then the gravitational force that pulls any massive object together will squish them so close together that you get them so squished tightly that the hydrogen nuclei start to fuse into helium, and this generates vast amounts of energy. And that is the little twinkle in your eye, you stake your dreams on when you wish upon a star. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so mass isn't what holds us down at all; it's what gives us our flights of fancy, and it also helps ground us too. You know, when you if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed or whatever, when you look out on a clear night and see all the stars, it can really put things in perspective.
2: Yes, I do that quite a lot, actually. I've got a telescope, and even in my London bedroom, I can see some great things in the stars when you look up.
0: Yeah. And then, of course, gravity doesn't stop there. So it's pulling all the matter together and making stars, But and it keeps us in orbit around our star and pulls us. It also pulls the stars together into collections, into galaxies, and those galaxies attract each other too into galactic clusters. It's actually one of my favorite lines in any physics book. Um, it's got to be the final lectures, Volume 1, Chapter 7, for anyone who wants to look it up. <laughs> yeah,
1: just look it, that up now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's where he gets on to gravity, and there's a caption under an image of a globular star cluster. Now, normally talking about this on a podcast would be losing heat because astrophysical images are so beautiful and wow. and. This was published in 1963, so it's just little white specks against a black background, and the specks are getting significantly more dense towards the centre till it's like just a splurge of white. And under that, Feynman writes,
1: If one cannot see gravitation acting here, he has no soul. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there wow. you go. So we're talking mass and gravity and soul, baby. So, of course, we haven't even got onto what makes up most of the mass of the universe, and that's the stuff we can't see. So that's dark matter. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. You know what dark matter is then? Does anybody? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like
2: this is a trick question. <laughs> I'll just work that out after breakfast.
0: Yeah. Sure. <laughs> if anyone listening genuinely knows what dark matter is, there are a lot of people who would love to hear from you. It's, it's one of the greatest outstanding problems in physics. It got dreamed up when astrophysicists, re- they were... Calculating the masses of objects in distant galaxies. And there's a couple of ways you can do this. The mass is calculated based on luminosity of objects. There's a neat little equation that gives you that. And then there's masses calculated from the speed of objects on their trajectories. And you can imagine how that would fall out of solving Newton's laws of motion under gravity in a slightly more complicated cosmological way. But the masses they calculated this way weren't equating, they they weren't adding up with each other, leading them to the conclusion that there must be massive objects out there that they couldn't see. So they called it dark matter. And there are now a host of issues with cosmological theories that just don't work out without invoking dark matter. Quality sleep is essential. That's why
2: the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
1: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: It's actually really embarrassing, isn't it, that no one knows what dark matter is?
0: (laughs) Well, it's really irregular stuff. It's not just that we can't see it. We can't apply the standard model of physics, as we know it, to dark matter. It just doesn't work. So this is... The standard model of physics, the golden child of explaining everything there is to understand in the universe, how particles and forces interact and make protons, make people and everything. But it can't explain dark matter. So if the stuff that was obeying the rules of standard model, you'd you'd think you'd be able to see it if it was obeying this, the rules of the standard model. So all these unknowns aren't for want of trying. The possible theories for dark matter are legion. It's just, you know, trying to pin down something that, according to the laws of physics, as you know it, just doesn't seem to be there, is, no picnic. (laughs) (laughs) So physicists are literally tearing their hair out, trying to explain something they may never be able to detect directly. Chandra Prescott-Weinstein has a nice line on it in her book coming out in April. She calls it, it's to work on understanding dark matter is an act of faith.
1: Oh, lovely. A little sneak peek of a review to come there, Anna.
0: Yeah, yeah that's something to look out for in April.
2: <laughs> so we've got Richard Feynman talking about the soul, and we've got
1: Chandler <laughs> talking about an act of faith, you know. Oh, yeah. This is good. So how much stuff is out there?
0: Well, we're not, is this not just a, a little marginal adjustment to the masses we're talking about. The latest line in theoretical cosmology is that 80% of matter is dark matter. So only 20% of matter behaves according to the standard model, like you and me, this microphone, and our listeners, and so on. And then if you start taking dark energy into account, you realize there's only 25% of the stuff in the universe is actually matter at all, and the rest is dark energy. Dark energy uh, now. I know, that's just
1: going... (laughs) You're just (laughs) making
0: it up No, that's probably for another podcast, (laughs) (laughs) right? But yeah, so... Theorists are now thinking only five percent of matter in the universe is the sort of stuff you and I are made of. So next time you're not feeling so special, bear that in mind. <laughs> that we are massively in the minority. On cosmological scales, we're all special. But Tim, you've got more exciting things on your mind with mass. What have you got?
1: Well, where would mass be without the kilogram? <laughs> And so before you turn away in boredom, I think it's one of those um, things that sounds really dull, but is actually really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And almost everything I know about what we know about the kilogram, I stole from a talk I saw at New Scientist Live a few years ago by two people from the National Physical Laboratory, which if you don't know, the NPL is sort of the UK's Ministry of Measurements. So if you're a manufacturer and you want to make sure your measurements are extremely accurate, they're the ones you go to. It sounds like a, a Harry Potter ministry when you say that. Say it like I that.
0: I know, yeah. Ministry yeah, of measurements. Sure they should actually <laughs> call it
2: that.
1: They should rename, yeah. <laughs> so uh, when I saw this talk, which was only in 2018, the way we defined a kilogram was completely different to what it is now. So in 2018, we referenced all kilograms from this lump of metal in Paris called Le Grand K. <laughs>
0: Um, which <laughs> I just sounds like it's, a, it's, a Jean <laughs> Renault movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's got such a silly name. And it's just such a silly idea that, you know, every kilogram in the world is based on this lump of metal in Paris. And so there were copies of it. So NPL, they had their own copy, which was less ambitiously called Kilogram Number 18. Um, um. And yeah, and they kept that in um, southwest London. But one of the things I really remember from this talk was Purdy Williams, who was one of the people who gave the talk, she told this really funny story about when she was using kilogram number eighteen to calibrate some, you know, precise measurement. And this was, you know, she's quite a young woman at orange hair, describing this story next to the other guy who was giving the talk, who was like had been there sort of fifty years or something. So they were real like pair these two. And as she was describing this story, it was just so funny. So on one of her first days at NPL. She was given the task of calibrating something um, using these extremely minuscule weights. So there she is sitting at her desk, a weight in front of her so small she could barely see it, about to begin the calibration. And she sort of takes one big breath. Oh. exhales
0: whew, oh, no. and then it was gone <laughs> this
1: tiny extremely expensive weight was no longer on the table and obviously, it's basically impossible to see this thing and i felt sort of part i, I did feel really sorry for her but she's she found it funny now so she'd obviously got over it <laughs> Um, And to find it, she had to put on this pair of magnifying goggles and then crawl around on the floor for basically hours looking for this absolutely minuscule weight. And the sort of thing we're talking about here was 200 micrograms, which is like 0.0002 grams. Okay, close time. to the fairy
0: wasp now. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it's even harder than finding a fairy wasp at the end of your garden. But she did eventually find it and could finish the calibration, but it just sort of tells you how difficult <laughs> getting a precise measurement of a kilogram is. Uh there must be a
2: better way of doing it than that, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so I got got slightly sidetracked, but let's return to Lagrange K. Um, because this the system was rubbish for many reasons. So another reason was whenever they got out the um Le Grand K. Just touching it or it sitting there with a bit of dust changed what its mass was, but it didn't do it in a predictable way. And they couldn't. uh, So they knew the kilogram was constantly changing, but there was basically nothing they could do about it until um, 2019 when it all changed. So we came up with a new way to define the kilogram. And so instead of being linked to this metal Parisian lump, it's now linked to a constant of the universe. Makes more sense. Yeah, it makes a lot more sense. And it means you don't need to rely on one thing. Anyone in principle can measure the mass of a kilogram. But describing how it works is, is actually quite tricky. So I thought I'd perhaps tell you about length first, and then we can sort of wave our hands in the air a bit for mass, because with length, it's quite simple. So with length, it used to be just as silly that there used to be a sort of stick in Paris that was how we measured the length of a metre. <laughs> the grand stick. Uh, yeah, Le Grand I don't <laughs> actually know what it was called, but probably something like that. And then we changed it so that to define a meter, we use the speed of light in a vacuum, which we know is a constant of the universe. So roughly a meter is the distance that light can travel in a tiny fraction of a second. So roughly about the distance that it travels in one 300 millionth of a second. So obviously, that's really, that's a very small amount of time that that takes. But in principle, if you've got good enough equipment, anyone can check this anywhere in the world. You don't need to go and find the stick in Paris to do it. But for the kilogram, it turned out the kilogram was the last of like the standard units to get a universal constant as part of its definition, because it's one of the trickiest. And it uses the Planck constant, which is this sort of constant that describes the smallest possible packet of energy. And so I won't, I won't go into the details, but basically you need a very sp- spherical ball of silicon, a measuring device called a kibble balance, and you need to be able to measure the Planck constant. But if you've got all of that, then you can determine exactly the mass of a kilogram anywhere in the world.
0: Mm, I'm wondering where they're finding these microscale masses on the floor might be. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really tricky. Like At the time when they switched to this new definition, there were only two kibble balances in the world. So it's quite it's quite a tricky thing to produce. But now that it's like the standard, it will become a lot easier. And eventually it will be the sort of thing that most countries will be able to um, precisely measure the kilogram. So what's happened to the actual Le Grand K? I suspect it's in a museum, but I don't know. Maybe it's it's gone on a grand holiday.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Retirement. We <laughs> would
1: all like to do go on a holiday.
2: <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Now that's all for this week.
0: Yep, that's all for this week's Escape Pod. Do subscribe and tell everyone about the Escape Pod, and get in touch on Twitter at NewScientistPod.
2: Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye bye.
2: This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.